0: Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startup to enterprise and everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's fastest-growing resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to, follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome. Welcome. And thanks for listening. Hi there, fans. Welcome to episode 28 of 100 Product Managers. Today, we are in Santa Monica at the offices of Pivotal Labs, joined by not one, but two product managers. David Crony, Lead Product Manager at Pivotal Labs, and Fred Lee, Senior Technical Product Manager for CoreLogic. We're going to hear all about the collaboration between Pivotal Labs and CoreLogic, And why two product managers may just be better than one. So this is a little bit of a unique construct for the 100 p.m. show, having two product managers in one episode. But... It's also because this construct of pairing is a little bit unique to Pivotal. and I want to talk about that, but uh, David, first tell our listeners, who is Pivotal?
1: Yeah, Pivotal Labs is a software development consultancy. So we work with a number of different companies, enterprise and startups, to help them build software in an agile way.
0: So when you talk about being a, a software development company, my impression from that is you have clients, they want to build product, they turn to Google and they're like, somebody who builds product help and they find Pivotal. I mean, that's probably a crude explanation. How, yeah. How? It? what catalyzes the need from a client side to say, we need to build a product? And then how do they typically find you?
1: A lot of enterprise clients like CoreLogic, for example, really feel the need to be uh, more agile, more reactive to the markets. I think that's why they seek out a company like Pivotal. They see the need to move quickly um, and not get left behind with changing market needs.
0: Fred, mm-hmm. are you a product company yourselves? Help us to understand what is CoreLogic.
2: Sure, so a bit of background about CoreLogic. We provide property information, analytics, and data solutions for the real estate, mortgage, and insurance industries, just to name a few. Uh, we are as you mentioned in collaboration with Pivotal Labs we wanted to create a global center of excellence for our next generation technology platforms applications analytical models and solutions and so we really recognize i think as a as a as an enterprise company we need to move fast as david mentioned we need to respond to the market quickly we really wanted to focus on innovation uh, and to take it to the next level with pivotal we are really investing in that so that we can quickly respond to market needs and provide just better solutions for our customers and users.
0: Thinking back to sort of before, CoreLogic is a product company, right? You already offer products. So I'm curious to know for a company of your scale, what catalyzes the need to go outside? I mean, you talk about sort of working quickly, but it raises the question of why can't we just adopt agile process internally? Why do we need to go to a company to help or or do that with us?
2: Sure. I think in in my opinion, it's one thing just to adopt a process. It's a different thing to adopt an entire new culture and mindset. While we may have already done agile throughout the company in different areas, uh, the differences in not just the process that Pivotal has helped bring uh, to our labs, but really there's a different way of thinking about products. And, And in particular, delivering value to our users. So the focus on user-centered design, on delivering value in, in an incremental way in every step of the process, those types of things, and, and again, the, the way you do it using extreme programming practices, being lean, all those things are a, a change in mindset. And I think being immersed in, in, in partnership with Pivotal really helped ingrain that culture into a what Is otherwise you know a larger enterprise company with offices throughout the world.
0: Let's talk about extreme programming for a moment. I have a favorite slide I like to share in my Mm -hmm. classes about Agile. So Mm -hmm. demystifying Agile. And if Agile is the umbrella, right, it's a set of principles and values that are about a certain way of approaching process. Mm -hmm. And then underneath that umbrella, we have different software delivery methods and different management practices. We have Lean, we have Kanban, we have XP. What is XP for those people listening in who have never heard of it before?
1: Yeah, great question. XP is really the principles of agile taken to their extreme. Okay. So you have code review done by pair programming, so it's live code review. You're working together as a development pair. You're checking your code constantly as you go. Um, you're releasing software ideally every day as often as possible. We work on weekly iterations, for example. You're constantly seeking to improve, so you have retrospectives every week to discuss how things are going and what you could change. Um, so a lot of those core principles of Agile can be interpreted in different ways, and XP really takes those um, and kind of pushes them to their boundaries so you can truly be building software quickly in a very iterative way, and always striving to improve that process too. So
0: every developer has a developer of equal skill set and capacity beside them or it's more of a senior paired with a junior what is that construct
1: that's a good question it could vary um you could have a more senior developer paired with a more junior developer and the idea is that they can get up to parity quicker that way and help each other so it could really it could fall out either way to be honest um but the idea is that they will both have productive input to bring to the table Um, And whereas someone who's more experienced in one language might be able to help up um, another developer in that area, the other developer who's not as experienced may bring their unique knowledge to the table too. So it works out nicely in that way.
0: I mean, the impression that you're creating for me is somebody is coding and somebody else is in real time being like, whoa, 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 you forgot that end bracket. Is that how
1: extreme it can be? That's exactly how it goes. Yeah, so your pair is, in a way, a check on some of the, let's say, crazy ideas you might want to implement. So you're definitely doing that real time.
0: Wow. Yeah. So this is kind of the original concept of how pivotal, as I understand it, sort of how pivotal started is XP was relatively young, relatively uh, not not relatively well known, and it was kind of one of the foundational principles of what set you apart as a consultancy, but you've evolved that pair concept beyond just the developers.
1: Yeah, indeed, we, we pair as product managers and as designers too, which is quite unique. I've never done that before. I came to Pivotal, um, and I'm pretty sure most of our clients haven't either. So it's a really interesting idea, but I think you know my experience pairing with the client, the great thing about that is we can, we can show them our process, our methodology, we can work on it together, and then they can start to take it and run with it and take it back to their company and start to become then a champion for the process themselves.
0: So were you and Fred pairs at one time? Yeah, we were. We
1: were pairs for well, about eight months almost, I think. You're not pairs anymore. You're past we're, pairs. Yeah, we're past pairing.
0: But you all listening, you can't see, but they're smiling <laughs> lovingly at each other. So I think they had a good experience being pairs. That's funny.
1: Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, it was really good. Um, you know, like I said, it, Fred comes in, We work together, I can help him understand the pivotal process, both from, you know, the very beginning of the project, which was a lot of user research and discovery, to the backlog management, to actually starting to build the product that we were working on together. And it's super valuable because we have two heads, I think are a lot better than one in this case. We can be a lot more productive. We can actually sanity check each other too, just as our development pairs would be. So we can um, think about whether ideas make sense. We can flesh out really good user stories. We can help Tag Team to unblock um, the development team as well, both internally and the stakeholder side that Fred has to deal with, and I can help him with that too. So it does sound somewhat counterintuitive to have two people being a product manager, but I would argue that it was actually doubly effective, and that's typically how I find it.
0: Part of your process is that you require the client to come here and work.
1: Yeah, that's another really important part of it. Again, it's it's part of the XP principle, too, that the team should be co-located. fosters better communication, as you, as you saw out on our workflow there. We are working right next to each other in pods. So if you ever have a question of the development team or of a designer, it's literally a case of either turning around to talk to them or walking over to talk to them. So ideally, we would like our clients to be co-located. It doesn't always work out that way. We do some remote pairing when we have to. And we can use Google Hangouts or appear in something like that, or a Screen Hero, to make that happen. But we would much rather work in person, um, so we get that more nuanced face-to-face communication. And we find that it makes for a lot more effective product development that way.
0: What does a typical team construct look like? I mean, and, and let me preface this by saying the challenge for product management is, as both of you probably know, is it can look very different depending on where you are. Do I have seven other product managers and I'm the lead of that department? Am I the CEO and the product manager and the CTO and trying to be all of those things? When you typically have a client engagement come, is it you know one PM, one designer, one coder, and then teams of six, how does it look?
1: So ideally it would be a balanced team of, let's say for example, um, two to three pairs of developers, um, a client designer, a Pivotal designer, a client product manager, and a Pivotal product manager. That would be a typical, and probably the ideal um, situation for us.
0: Now, Fred, CoreLogic is a slightly different complexion because you actually have an innovation lab yourselves co-located mm-hmm. here with Pivotal. So did it always start that way, or was it like, we're having so much fun, let's not leave?
2: I think the goal was always to adopt the culture. And I think the best way to do that, as Dave mentioned, is to be co-located. We are, yeah, I think from the outset, we knew that in order to really instill that ingrained culture, it wouldn't work trying to just have people go into our existing offices and spend a few weeks there and then leave. Yeah, There's that's no way to plant a seed. So I think we knew from the very beginning we would have to really be set up here with Pivotal. You know, have the the snacks. It, it sounds silly, but the ping pong, the snacks, the breakfast, all of them serve a very specific purpose. We can get into that if you're interested. But
0: I mean, I'm getting interested in eating the snacks and playing ping pong, <laughs> but I don't know how much that'll benefit yeah. our listeners.
2: But but you know, the 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 pairing, the, the the shared workspace, the stand-up desks, all of those things are are actually purposeful in, in terms of the process, and so to be co-located to actually be here in the same office with pivotal was the best way to really ingrain that that mindset.
0: Does core logic then send or deploy handfuls of team members to come and quote unquote live here for a time, do the pilgrimage and then return back and and help to spread the word and and manifest that culture more deeply or just rotate and bring other people to be exposed?
2: Sure, so so in the beginning, we would. Uh, I was an external hire to CoreLogic. I I was hired to start working in Labs. We also had existing CoreLogic employees uh, come here as well, that were hired into Labs. And then we also had temporary assignments within the organization for people to come here, and the temporary assignments would spend anywhere from three to nine to twelve months in some cases, and then go back to their their home office, so to speak, and they've started to install and, and plant a seed in the other offices. And um, we, we're now working on expanding out our innovation labs to other satellite offices within the company. And I think now that we've established and understand the process, the culture, the mindset, we're, we're better able to do that uh, as an organization.
0: Well, I, I always tell my clients, I think the mark of a great consultancy is, you know, we'll teach you to fish Mm -hmm. and then you can fish. And it sounds a little bit like that's part of what your, the benefits that CoreLogic is realizing is we took this deliberate approach to we want this learning to be lasting. And now you're beginning to be in a a place where you can start to stand up these
1: processes yourselves. Exactly. You've learned to fish.
2: That's always been the goal from the very beginning. Absolutely.
1: Um, And I think, you know, we... To take that concept further, we want to create phishing instructors. Right? So we want to create people from Logic who, let's say Fred is a product manager, who can then act as an evangelist within the organization for the type of process and methodology that we follow here. Right. So he then becomes the teacher. That would be our ideal outcome, and, and that's what we're striving for.
0: It seems to me incredibly important because I think we've all experienced that great ideas can die on the vine if there's not the right level of internal support. So it's like, oh, here's this great little initiative. You know, you go away, you learn, and then you come back. But if you're the lone voice saying, no, we have to have a a reduced waste approach to doing this. No, we have to have accountability. No, we have to have agile process. And then somebody just kills it because it's too much work to support it, then it's really all for naught. But I'm curious to go back to the construct of client teams coming here. Is it typical that a client would already have a product manager? You know, I I imagine at this point, most companies employ designers and developers usually at a much smaller scale than is believable Mm -hmm. from the outside. But do they even have PMs in the first place?
1: Yeah, so it's a a real mixture. Some companies have business analysts, um, they have project managers. Um, Some of them do have product managers. Not many have them in the sense that we would consider a product manager to be very much kind of full stack. So we were talking about that at breakfast this morning, Uh, this concept of a product manager who can really own the product end to end from the user research phase all the way through to delivery and play a very active role in the day to day management of the backlog. Um, We see very few companies that have that kind of product manager in place already and that's the kind of person that we'd like to train up so usually they'll identify someone they think has potential to perform that role and they will come to us with that person and we will then pair with them Um, but typically the setup they've had before has been different to what they would experience here.
0: Why do you think it is both of you right from different sides of of the fence on this why do you think it is that so many large-scale companies don't have product managers?
1: It's a good question. I think a lot of it probably has to do with the, the challenges of, of scale and, and hierarchy especially. Um, you have stakeholders who are, um, they would like to build a certain thing and they're opinionated in that way. So you don't have this kind of bottom-up, um, product-driven um, type of approach that you would have with a product manager who's given greater autonomy to actually explore the ideas, make sure this is a good fit for both the business and the user or the consumer. I personally think it comes from a lot of that top-down approach. Right.
2: Yeah, and I think to build upon that, historically, my understanding is product managers as a role is a relatively new concept in the last 10-15 years. I think historically, uh, senior people were measured against their ability to anticipate or understand the market, the users, the their customers. I think it takes a, a different type of modesty, humility, to be able to take a step back and say, I might not know what's best for my users. I want to go talk to my users. I want to do user research. And even if I have a hypothesis, I want to validate that hypothesis. I think more recently, there's an understanding and there's a better acceptance of that sort of humility uh, for innovative companies in in order to make really next generation and products that really address user needs. So the whole shift in, again, senior management supposedly wanting to, you know, supposedly their role is to understand that that direction versus a product manager nowadays recognizing that my job is to put this process into place and execute on it so that we can come up with the right problems to solve.
0: I think it's really beautifully put because just in life right there's so much pressure to look like you know what you're doing and to be right and to be the best and you know different people growing up have different experiences of that pressure but in a lot of ways I I would agree with you entirely that great product managers are really comfortable being like I have no idea and, and actually recognizing that that's the most honorable position to start from, because if you start from, I have no idea, or you start from, as you say, let's go find out, then everything is an open investigation that can lead to real insights, for better and for worse. And, and actually, for better and for worse is removed because you're not as attached to the outcome. Versus if you've already decided that you know what's right and then you go out and do some customer research and it doesn't come back favorably, this is where I think you see a lot of people fight to deny that research or ignore it or just say forget it, we're doing it my way anyway and and then the process comes crumbling down.
1: Exactly. It's very hard to let that go, those personal biases. So um, you have to be someone who's comfortable with a lot of change and uncertainty and like you said, not knowing the answer. But you then have to ask a lot of questions. Right. Um, you have to be that kind of um, inquisitive person, I think. Are we there
0: yet? Are we there yet? It's Are we like... there yet? It's funny when you were talking before, David, about the the product manager role and, and not maybe it's analysts, maybe it's project managers. One of the things I encounter a lot as an instructor, people come up to me after a workshop or after a course and they'll say, you know, I think I've been a product manager <laughs> for the last two years, but... I didn't know, you know, they came into the class wanting to learn more about product as though it was this sort of other cool thing and then discovering exactly that, that what they've been doing under the label of project manager or something else entirely is owning the responsibility of a workflow, of an actual process, of a product that's been built sometimes without kind of fully thinking it through. Do you have those same revelatory experiences from clients that
1: came not as pro- came not as product managers but left as product managers? Yeah, absolutely. They, they definitely empathize with that. And I think most people really want to be approaching their job like that. They want to have that um, concept of exploring new avenues, of um, really taking a sense of ownership of the product too. Um, so yeah, I've definitely experienced that. I experienced that myself in my last position at a startup. I kind of look back on it, I started out in marketing, and I thought, you know what, Um, I really want to change the product because I can't effectively market something that doesn't really fit a need for the users. And then I realized after a year that that's what I was doing, and then I made that more formal switch into product. So I've had that myself, and I see that from clients too.
0: I'm curious if it works equally the other way, though, where, you know, differently from the CoreLogic experience, Fred, as you described, where there is clearly buy-in and and uh, desire to have this be a lasting change if sometimes people come you know they came as a project manager an analyst they experience the reality of product management they like anything you know you go away and you're like rah 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 and you're excited and then they get back to their office back to the old habits back to distractions and then this product management role sort of collapse Have you ever seen that happen?
1: I I think it can happen, and it certainly is more likely to happen if there is not um, a greater effort within the company to change things fundamentally, to change the structure of, let's say, the way the legal department is run, the way projects are funded, um, the way um, operationally things are done, all the way through to HR, for example. If that support structure isn't in in place and the company isn't truly committed to changing the way they build product, then there are people coming back in with this newly acquired knowledge are going to have a much harder time of implementing it. And it's a lot more likely that, like you say, they will fall back on the old methods because that's what they have to do to operate within the current environment. So there needs, it does need to be a big shift. And I think going back to your earlier question about why companies come to us, I think they are recognising, to the point Fred made earlier, that you don't always know the best um, answer for a product. um, As a senior manager, for example, they're recognising that and they want to come to Pivotal to, become better at understanding um, truly what makes a successful product.
0: Right. And one of the essential distinctions that I tell clients all the time is products are not projects, right? We're not building a campaign microsite for a contest that we're going to run for six weeks. We're building a platform, whether it's some sort of tool that you're using internally to increase your efficiency, whether it's a tool that you're using to offer a top line revenue opportunity or bolster kind of customer loyalty or engagement and so you know a lot of the times these ideas come from the top as you described earlier they get built and then there's no consideration for well who's going to look after this thing I say it's like having children I mean if you commit to, to putting one into the world you kind of have to commit to feeding it and clothing it and steering it through the hardships of
1: adolescence yeah which is yeah, when it throws up on you, you know, you have to, to clean it up, um, all that stuff. Yeah, I think it's a really good point because a lot of people will ask us, okay, when is this going to be done? When is this product done? And the answer is it's never done. You know, it's a continually evolving thing. And it's going to have to be to remain competitive. Presumably, you launched it for a reason. There's a, a business fit and a user need that you're trying to answer, and you have to continuously work on it.
2: Yeah, one of the things I'd like to emphasize is a lot of people, especially when you're thinking about product as a project a lot of people think the end goal is whenever you release that mvp or whenever you make that first uh, go-to-market release to your customer base and in fact and there's a lot of thinking around this and a lot of articles written about it um, but the, the the first release to your customers is actually the very beginning that's actually the first step in a lot of ways that's job one there's a lot of emphasis placed on everything that leads up to that point, but the reality is is so much more needs to happen after that. And until you actually have the product in customers' hands, using it, paying money for it, until you're, you're doing that, you're, you're not, you don't really have a product, right? And I think a lot of people, a lot of organizations in some cases um, over, overlook that key point.
0: Yeah, I would agree entirely. I think one of the challenges from a consultancy perspective is number one, as you say, David, you're always championing the process and mm-hmm. the importance of being able to continue to champion the process when we've when come and, and done our help and, and, and left. And I think the other challenge, especially in startup context, you mentioned startups earlier, is you're building a product for which the actual process isn't known entirely and so you know we always advocate of course for less 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 subtract 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 and then of course people always want to put features is a is a fear defense mechanism I think it's like if we just keep putting features in front of the release then we don't ever have to face the really hard stuff like can we actually drive any customers to this thing can we actually convert any customers but also we might develop a really uh, elaborate workflow where the user app interfaces with the admin experience which pings the system and all of these things happen and architecturally it's sound and Mm -hmm. from a UX perspective it's sound but then we go into the world and we have to manually work alongside that process and we realize oh this isn't the right order of things at all and You know, I've had certainly the experience where kind of clients come back and there's this sense of, you should have known how this was going to work. Have you ever had that? Where it's like, and I think what why I'm bringing it up, Fred, is because it speaks to your point about getting it to market is the beginning, not the end, because that's when the rubber hits the road. And then all of these realities meet you and you have to say, well, we've got to make a change. We've got to adjust the code. And if you're thinking about it project centric, then... I already spent 60 grand, 600 grand, now you're telling me I have to spend half that again to change these things? Don't you guys know what you're doing? Don't you know what you're doing, David?
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I haven't had that specific example. Um, I haven't had clients talk about that, but I think what's important to remember is that we provide, you know, the, the process is important, but it's really a set of bumpers or a framework for a company to work within. Um, and, you know, it really, I think the core principles of being flexible and adaptive are what they have to remember there, um, given the situation you're in, because every company has a different situation. The core principles are the same, I think in terms of building an effective product, but there's not. we can't anticipate everything that's gonna happen. Right. I've never had that specific question though, yeah. <laughs> it's
0: real. It's out there. I yeah. just I like to put all the dirty stuff right out on the table and just be like, let's name
2: this. Yeah. the The interesting thing about your example is, with any with any process, within any enterprise or any company, you have to adopt the process to work well within the culture of that organization. So, in in the case of the example that you gave. There's a key aspect to product management which I think is often overlooked which is the ability, a skill, and the ability to influence. Mm-hmm. Outside of the process, we, you know, there's, there's a next level that we need to do uh, that we need to figure out within our organization around how to, how to um, work with other aspects of the organization, other business units, other leaders, you know, leadership within the organization uh, to influence the right type of decision making. And as a product manager, and again, this is just my personal opinion, but as a product manager, that's, that's a key skill. You, on a day-to-day basis, are working with your team of designers, developers, to influence them to some degree, but you also have stakeholders within the organization to influence the you know, business decisions that are happening, the strategic decisions that are happening with the organization, and being on the ground, having to talk to users, having to deliver on the product, you have the ability to have a very good opinion on where things should go and your ability to influence other decision makers to make di- directional changes into the, that align with your opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very, very important skill set in my mind.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up, Fred. I. Just last night I was having dinner with a friend and, and she asked me what, what's the most challenging part about the work that you do with your clients and I didn't have a long list because I really love the product work but one of the things that I said is it can be frustrating when you're advocating for the decisions that are right. And I don't mean right from an ego perspective, I mean right from a, a lean perspective. You know, let's let's walk before we run. You don't need to. You don't need to spend this much money right now. You need to spend one fifth of it and see if you can prove out just this one tiny piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I bring, I, I take that very seriously. It's like I want you to succeed in a landscape where it's actually really difficult to succeed. Mm-hmm. Right, like the odds of succeeding are one in ten, and I want to give you your best possible chance, and I want to do that by infusing. mistakes that I've made from the past the the best practices in the process I want to save you money I want to save you aggravation and then at the end of the day they're like thank you but no we're gonna do this I I, you know I think that's kind of a a really challenging piece and then I remember that the benefit of being in a consultative capacity is you can say okay well that's they're, they're on their path but I'm curious, Fred, in the context of being internal, mm-hmm. and as you describe that, of sort of having to advocate internally, it's more challenging, it's the same feeling, I would imagine, of, of really knowing what you think is the right thing to do, and being met with extreme resistance, or being overruled. But then you also have to kind of stay there, mm-hmm. and be in it. Or, or as many people have been faced with, then they leave a company, because it's, it's it's too difficult to reconcile the differences, but can you talk about experiences, either your own or folks that you know that have had to be in that difficult moment?
2: Sure, without going into specifics, uh, the, the first thing I'd like to say is having a culture of collaboration is key, right? We, being able to have those open discussions and understand the reasons behind them, even if they're opposing viewpoints, and having a culture of, being able to have that open discussion is, is really key. Given that, you know, there's there's different again going back to influencing. There's 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 different sort of leadership again. This is sort of a leadership thing. So th- this kind of helps with any of your listeners out there who are looking to get into product management. But there's there's different styles or tactics that can be used to influence people. One of them is rationalizing, which is around providing facts. So you can always go back and say this is what we found in our user research this is what users are saying if there's a different opinion that's fine and I, like i mentioned earlier being modest and humble being able to say okay well we have this hypothesis let's agree to disagree on if we have different opinions about it but at least let's agree to do some research just to validate that hypothesis i think that helps address a lot of sort of product decisions um, if you can always tie it back to what users are really giving feedback on that helps but of course there's other aspects too like there's always you, know, you can leverage just personal relationships or just your your, your ability to bridge with people um, sometimes it's a, it's a give and take right there's a negotiation going on uh, sometimes it's sometimes it is just someone more senior saying we're just going to do it this way for these reasons and they might be valid reasons they might disagree with some of your findings but you know, it's, it's a discussion, it's a collaboration, it, it's a team effort. And I think, at the end of the day, being able to sort of understand the reasoning and, and at least as a team come to a decision, even if it's, even if it even if people have different opinions about those things, um, if it's made with a, in a collaborative way, I don't think it's necessarily ever a bad decision per se. It's just a decision, and then you you know, build up build from that decision.
1: I think what Fred's um, describing there is a key trait of a good product manager is empathy. It's empathy for your team. It's empathy for the stakeholders, for the user, because you're this person in the middle who has to connect all the dots and has to make this work successfully. And even if you believe your logic and your reasoning is sound and um, the person on the other end doesn't seem to be listening to it, you, have to, you still have to empathize with them. You have to put yourself in their shoes and understand why they might be reacting in that way. It's key for product managers.
0: We talk a lot about uh, empathy on the show and the importance of the skill, but remembering empathy for the team, I think, is an important one. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes we frame it as, you know, as a product manager, you're a translator, but I think implied in that skill of being a great translator, of communicating developer concerns and needs and designer concerns and needs is an underlying, I understand where they're coming from. Yeah. I'm curious to know what you think about the role of gut instinct in in this day and age. You know, we rely as a discipline so much on the scientific method, as you were talking about, and for very good reason, as you described. And yet there are sometimes cases to be made for, we're looking at the data wrong, I know this is right, we just haven't pivoted to the exact place. You know, how much room do you allow for that?
1: I think gut instinct is very useful when you need to make a decision quickly because making a quick decision can enable you to um, release your product, get feedback quicker, um, and really understand if you're going down the right path or not. That's when I think it's super useful. I think you can be paralysed by indecision sometimes when making product decisions that seem really important. They may or may not be, but you have to make that decision. And I think that's where gut instinct can actually be quite useful in terms of making a decision going down a path and being willing to change that decision um, and certainly measure the implications of that. That's what I think is useful. Yeah, it,
2: it, your comment made me think of something around the goal, right? If, if the goal is, so in a traditional waterfall, the goal is more to reduce waste, to, to do something and do it once. Whereas in Agile, there's not necessarily a focus on getting it right the first time. There's a focus on, let's deliver value to the user as quickly as possible. We may very well know that the way we're doing it might not be perfect, but at least we can get it out there, get some feedback and iterate on it. And so you might iterate and you might quote unquote have waste because you are redoing things, but again, the goal is not to limit the amount of reuse, the goal is to deliver value as soon as possible.
0: Right, and I think that's the the sentiment of that is the fail fast, learn fast kind of things. Don't be afraid to be wrong, be prepared to quickly learn why it was wrong and then make an adjustment yes you talked before david about you were at a startup before Mm. and i'm curious about your experience as a pm inside of a consultancy versus sort of that other application because i know certainly from my own experience one of the awesome things about being a a consulting pm is you get to learn a lot of different businesses you get to touch a lot of different projects and you get to help steer products through very specific points in their life cycle whether that's the introduction phase whether it's through a growth phase whether it's into maturity or expansion but at some point you have to say goodbye and you know you can fall in love with these things a little bit and and do you miss the role of being able to be kind of married to a single product and and potentially be the one or one of the ones to steer it through its entire destiny
1: i do miss some of that there's always a twinge of of that that i i miss i i think on balance though i value the the breadth of experience i get here um in a consulting role more than that sense of ownership because i think It was a lot of fun launching a product, especially a user-facing product, where you could see the numbers come in. You could look at Google Analytics. You could see who's using your product in real time, if it was going well or if it wasn't. And that was awesome. It was a great feeling. Um, I don't know how much of that is ego as as opposed to just a sense of fulfillment. Um, And I get just as much fulfillment from helping companies start to research and launch a product as I did with actually quote-unquote owning a product. And so when I talk to you know, PMs who, let's say they want to work at Pivotal Labs, it's one thing I always talk about upfront is, hey, you, if you're used to having this sense of ownership over a product, you're going to have to be prepared to let that go here because we're working with a lot of different products. But um, on the flip side, you will get exposure to tons of interesting products, lots of different people, different industries, and that's massively valuable
0: too. Fred, how did you get into product management? You said you had been brought on specifically for this partnership Mm -hmm. were you a product manager before that
2: my career kind of started in I have a technical background an engineering background Um, I worked in a lot of different roles throughout my career which I think none of them were specifically labeled as a product manager but they were different skill sets that I think are required in product management so for example I've in the past, been a data analyst, a business analyst, a soft a, a trained people in software. I was a strategy consultant. I was a project manager um, on a SaaS e-commerce platform. I was a account manager for a royalty and licensing SaaS platform. So all of those things being client facing, having project management skills, having strategy skills, having data and business analysis skills, and even uh, user-facing training skills, all of those things come into play in in product management. So up until my more recent job roles, and especially this job role, it, it sort of laid a path that actually naturally ended up bringing me here today as a product manager.
0: Right. So did you immediately, when you were kind of appointed to the role, did you immediately have the confidence of, oh, this makes sense. I've already done this role in all of these kind of unpacked linear ways. Or were you kind of like the example we talked about earlier, where you looked back at your history through a new lens and suddenly went, I- I've been a product manager longer than I actually thought.
2: Yeah, it was definitely the latter. Well, actually, in my last role, I, I was a a product manager per se, but I, I was wearing a lot of other hats too, as a as working in a startup often requires. So I knew at that point what a product manager was, but like I mentioned earlier, it, it, it was not, in, when I started out my career, product management was not a career path that was f- clearly defined. Mm-hmm. Along the way, I just realized, oh, all of my interests and all my skill sets in the tools that I've built along the way actually fit into this this newly defined, well, what was new to me, this newly defined role that's labeled as product management. And so from that point on, 2012 and onward, then I realized, okay, I want to be a quote unquote product manager.
0: Your title is actually Senior Technical Product Manager. And I have to ask this question because I get asked this question all the time, just how technical... Does a technical PM need to be?
2: So th- that's a good question. I think it really depends on the organization. I think having a general understanding of tech stacks, you know, database, not, not even details, but just architectural things, um, being of an analytical mindset and logical mindset is important. I wouldn't necessarily say anything I do today is super technical. I'm not necessarily uh, reviewing code, for example. Uh, some organizations might require that from a technical product manager but uh, i'm not looking at code from that perspective i might be you know looking at xml or json and interacting with apis to test them to accept stories but again i'm not reviewing code so i don't think it really depends on the organization in my current role it's not that technical in my opinion
0: but they like to keep the technical in there so that if something goes wrong, on the floor, they know they can come <laughs> yeah, and grab Fred's it. Called, yeah. Fred, we need you. You're a technical PM, right? Okay. Let's do Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. Um, this is a segment we do regularly on our show. Start with you, David. Advice for up and coming PMs or people who are newly in the role, working just outside of the PM role, want to get into it, don't know how to make the step. What would you say?
1: yeah so um my first advice would be to find a company that you really believe in certainly in terms of culture um and ideally product as well because you want to be working for a company where you're you're passionate about um the way that they're building product and their products are building so that's i think is the first thing honestly if you find such a company that you love um any closely related role that you can get into to begin with would be fine um kind of using my own example of you know, really starting in marketing because i had a marketing background and then transitioning into the product team within that startup because i believed that you know in order to have more effective marketing initially we needed to improve the product a lot so that was my route at least but i think it all starts with the company and the culture um, for up and coming product managers too i think the more that you ask questions the more that you show a genuine interest in the product if you're at a company where let's say you're not on the product team but you want to be i think the more you demonstrate an interest in that and start to involve yourself more in those product conversations, the better. Um, You know, get to know the product team, um, come up with ideas yourself, um, do some user research if you can. Those things are all great ways of starting to get more exposure to the product. I think that's a a natural way to do it. We we have a lot of product managers here and I've worked with a lot of product managers who let's say have a computer science degree or an MBA um, or startup background. There's so many different paths that people take to product management management that I think there's no one defined solution for those people that, um, that fits everybody. So my advice would be, you know, find a company that you believe is building product in a, in a good way and has a good culture and start from there.
0: I'm glad you bring up the point about taking an associated role and sort of working your way in, in from inside, but I'm yeah. curious if you could speak to, in your opinion, what's the timeline look like? Say I'm a, a user experience designer, I really want to move into product, but I know that I probably can't get hired for product, but I could get hired for UX. Mm-hmm. And, but part of me is resisting that path because I really want to be in product. Is it take this UX job, spend a year, actively work your way? Could I be there in months? I mean, I'm sure it depends, but what would you think would be a realistic time frame?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a really good way to get into it, actually, because as a UX designer, you're gonna start to build that empathy for the user, which is really valuable for a product management position. You're gonna get exposure to the product, you're gonna be involved in building a component part of it, designing it, and I think, again, it totally depends on the company, but within a year or two, you could potentially make that switch. I think um, getting to know and understand the product very well, will definitely help you there. So, I would say it might take a little while. It's interesting because product managers who have a lot of experience in different industries, I think, come in with a great perspective on things, but you just need to get that start. So, if you can do that as a UX designer for a couple of years, I think that's a great way to transition.
0: Fred, what in your experience has been the hardest lesson that you've either had to learn as a PM yourself or that you have seen in peers where? This is not as easy as I thought it was going to be in concept for the PM role.
2: I think the hardest part is personal growth. Uh, It's a little cliche, but being, again, being humble and modest, I keep coming back to that, is an important aspect. Um, People always talk about leadership as a general thing, but being able, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about similar themes throughout because I think it is important again going back to the whole influencing the ability to influence so knowing that you have a certain skill set and that you're strong in some areas and weak in others and having that modesty and, and being able to know i need to focus on getting better at speaking to senior management or i need to get better at creating fostering relationships with technical people dbas you know other people that i might need help from in the future things like that, recognizing that and being able to have a concerted effort to focus on developing those those weak points that you might have in your toolbox, so to speak.
0: What about your favorite thing about this job? I mean, you've, as you described earlier, you've done all of the jobs Mm -hmm. and you seem to have settled into product management, at least for now. What is it that you love about the PM role?
2: I think it is the ability to Flex and use a lot of different muscles, so to speak. It requires wearing a lot of different hats again, depending on where, what phase a product's in. But having every day almost not necessarily being the same and always being challenged, uh, both from my operational perspective, but from a personal growth perspective as well, is is one of the rewarding things. I feel like I'm becoming, I'm leveling up in my personal skill set, but also in my ability to deliver value to the company and ultimately to users.
1: It's a full body workout.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was
0: going to say, it's CrossFit. I (laughs) had no idea. David, what about for you? What is it that you love about this role?
1: I love the fact that I get to interact with so many different types of people from the development team to designers, to stakeholders, to users. I love the variety in the job too. I'm someone who likes to always be learning about new things. and so that part of it is very appealing to me. Um, I think that's what I get the most from it. Cool. Any recommended
0: resources that either of you want to contribute to our, our growing list at 100productmanagers.com? Could be books, podcasts, blogs, anything that has helped you shift your perspective fundamentally? Or
1: Yeah, I suppose I would have to have to say, I'd have to recommend um, XP Explained by Kent Beck. So the, the XP Bible, I suppose, as it were, it's a really great book it just kind of outlines the concepts of what we're doing and why we're doing it Um, working in collaborative teams building software quickly getting fast feedback it's just a really good book to explain certainly what we do here at Pivotal Um, and I think it if you read that you'll have a good understanding of what agile means.
0: Do you make your clients read that book as part of their uh, initiation? Typically we
1: definitely recommend that. Have you read it Brad? I've read it. Yeah (laughs) good okay there we go.
2: There's a follow on book also uh... Planning XP. Planning XP yeah.
1: is good, too. Um, and then there's Just Enough Research by Erica Hall, as well. really good book in terms of helping you to understand um, what constitutes good user research. How are you going to make those informed decisions that shape your product? Beautiful. I would recommend that, too. Thank you.
2: Fred? Anyone that's new to product management or looking to get into product management should definitely read the General Assembly book on product management. Yeah. That's a good intro. Jacques Roussatil. Yep. The Lean Startup is also... Re- very good reading. And in terms of a blog, uh, you should definitely subscribe to Product Manager HQ. Uh, They provide weekly articles. There's a Slack channel. Uh, It's definitely worth checking out.
0: Awesome. Great great resources. A few new ones too to add to our list, so that's awesome. Uh, Last question uh, I'll ask you both. Fred, I'll start with you. Do you have a personal or professional mantra that you kind of use to guide the way that you move through the world?
2: I think it would have to be a lot of what I've been saying throughout the interview, which is uh, being humble, having humility, uh, knowing that you don't have all the right answers, but having confidence in your ability to figure out what the right answers are.
1: David? Yeah, so professionally, I would say um, do what... Do what works, do what's right, and be kind. Those are the values that we have at Pivotal, and I think the last one especially is super important. So, never assume bad intentions of someone. Always assume good intentions, and be kind. I think that's something that will help help you, and will go a long way in the workplace, um, and also in your personal life too. So, I really really like that um, set of values we have because it's pragmatic, and it's also, like Fred says, it reflects um, an element of humility and. And the ability to empathize with other people too. So I really like those three core values we have. Beautiful.
0: Thank you both so much. Should we go and take some of that bulk candy in the kitchen and really play some ping pong and enjoy the rest of our day? I think we
1: should do it, yeah.
0: uh, Cool. Thank you both. Hey listeners, are you fans of the 100PM podcast If you are, we'd be so grateful if you could head on over to iTunes, click subscribe, and give us a five-star rating. Maybe even take a minute to give a review, tell other listeners what it is that you think is great about the show. The more great reviews we get from listeners like you, the more opportunity we're going to have to get exposed to more and more listeners all across this great country. So please head on over to iTunes, rate 100 p.m. We're so grateful. We'll see you next week.